You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, um, I failed to mention a while ago that I did in the first service. We have, we have so many people serving at Grace in different capacities. Uh, you should know we have a security plan, a security team. There's a lot more going on all the time that you don't know about, that you're not aware of. But our hope is in the Lord, is it not? And our hope is not even in this life, as we're going to talk about in this message. Our focus needs to be on the hope that we have for eternity in Jesus Christ. Well, two to three years ago, Allison and I were in Washington, D.C., visiting Sean and Melissa Cross in the church plant at at, uh, uh, Union Church in D.C. And and we don't always do the touristy things, but on this particular occasion, we were doing some serious sightseeing. And we went to a place I'd never been before. Phil Wilson is going to be so proud. We went to Arlington Cemetery, and, and, and the statue of the, the, the Marines raising that flag at Iwo, Iwo Jima just touched me deeply. Never seen it before. First of all, I had no idea it was as huge as it is. But I just thought about the sacrifice that people make. And I heard this story. I should have looked it up, uh, but I heard the story about, it's not been too many years ago, one of the sons of the men who raised the flag just found out that his dad was one of those six that were in the photograph that became the statue or that was used to build the statue. It's just the way it used to be. People would go do their job and then they wouldn't talk about it anymore. Um, no Facebook and, and different so- Uh, forums on social media explaining to the world how our humble service was done for the Lord. Uh, The Babylon Bee is such a funny site, the satirical Christian site, you know, and it just shows people after 10 days on the mission field with a selfie, you know. You think about it and all that God says in the, in the New Testament, all the Lord says in the New Testament about don't, well, actually this is Proverbs, Let another man praise you. Don't let it come from your own lips. And truly, the Lord is teaching us to point the glory to him. And that has nothing to do with the analogy that I opened with. So here we go. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was filled with symbols that pointed to a belief in Yahweh. The one true God. The temple was evidence of the people's commitment to their God. But so was uh, uh, the, the sacrificial system and all the festivals and the strict observance to the Mosaic law. It all pointed to their belief and their piety. Except that the very people who built and eagerly participated in the, uh, a celebration of these symbols, missed the very thing the symbols were pointing to, Jesus. It all pointed to Jesus. Today's text is John chapter 7, verses 32 through 8, 11. If you're here for the first time, you may have already discerned that we're working our way through the gospel of John. And today we pick up in the middle of John 7, where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders during the Feast of Booths 
or tabernacles. I'll be talking about that along the way so that it'll begin to make a little sense to you, I hope. Jerusalem would have been filled with out-of-town worshipers <coughs> who were openly discussing, excuse me, discussing the identity of this troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth. In John 7, uh, the, Jesus creates quite a stir as he claims to be the purpose and focus of all of the structures, all of the memorials, all of the feasts. Everything Jesus said, he pointed, pointed to me. Everything points to me. Even though we're entering the middle of a story, the question about Jesus, the questions that people had about Jesus and the, and the opinions that people expressed about Jesus have a 2,000-year shelf life and it will continue until Jesus returns. Who was he? As we begin our time in the Word, I'm going to read a few verses of the text, after which we'll have a brief prayer and then jump into the story. It's our custom to stand as the Scripture is being read, so if you would please stand as I read from John 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, this feast of booths, this feast of tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Before I pray, I just want to point out, this is a very common practice of John. He will report something that Jesus said, like we see in verses 37 and 38. And then he will give commentary from a perspective that is written many years later. So John is looking back and he said, here's what Jesus said. Now, here's what he was talking about. So we have advantages that the people who heard Jesus say these things don't have, but they should have been able to piece it together from all of the evidence that was given to them by Jesus about who he was. So that'll help as we come to understand this text a little bit better when we're working our way through it. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we <coughs> thank you for your word that not only gives us the truth, but is life-giving in itself. So we pray that our hearts would be open and that you would fill us with the truth of Scripture and that Jesus might be magnified in our eyes, in our hearts, in our lives. And that we would walk away from this place more in love with the Savior than when we came. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, NBC. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the context. David Calvert started this last week in the first portion of John 7, but a little bit about the context of John 7 and 8, and maybe beyond. All of this occurred, certainly chapter 7 and 8, <clears throat> occurred during the Feast of Booths. Uh, Jesus had left Galilee to come down to Jerusalem 
at the Feast of Booths held in September and October, somewhere in there, to celebrate harvest while giving God, they were giving God thanks for the provision of rain for the crops that they were celebrating uh, at this festival, and then also praying for rain in the year to come. It was a festification. I guess I've, I've just thought about this. <laughs> there are so many things we take for granted, um, but... It is a festive occasion when the crops have come in, especially in a day where you don't have grocery stores on every corner and you can get food from, you know, co-ops and all different kinds of ways. But if, if, if God doesn't provide rain, but he has provided rain and the crops have grown and they're in the barns, they're put, in, put away in store and it's a festive occasion at that time of the year. Uh, it was the last of three major festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and booths or tabernacles, where people would gather from far and wide. They would come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Lord's goodness and his provision for them. So it was a perfect time for people to catch up on the news and on the gossip. They didn't have the 24-hour news cycles that we have. So when they came to town, man, they made, they made up for lost time. There was a lot of talk going on. And, and, and this time there was a whole lot of talk about Jesus. Biggest thing to happen in many, many years. And it was the perfect time for Jesus to publicly confront the religious leaders with their refusal, refusal to accept that God is far more interested in our hearts than he is our strict observance of religious practices that often pervert the spirit of the law. By the time the Feast of Booths arrived, Jesus was the talk of the nation. And as we pick up the narrative in verse 32, <clears throat> the religious leaders have had enough. The Pharisees who were sort of like the teachers and the, and, and, and the professors of the day, the rabbis, you know, they would walk along and behold, and everybody would listen. These were the teachers of the law. And the Sadducees, who were far more liberal in their thinking about religion and politics, they worked with the Roman government to get their places as leaders of the temple. And temple life in, in Israel was a big deal. So you got the Pharisees who are very conservative, like Republicans in our day, and, uh, or some anyway, and, and the Sadducees who were very liberal, or some anyway, like the Democrats are, coming together to say, we got to get rid of this guy. In fact, it would, it would be like Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren getting together and saying, you know, well, so-and-so, bad for the country, Got to arrest him. Got to kill him. We have to stop this person. He's dangerous. She's dangerous for our country. Can you imagine how badly the leaders hated Jesus and how afraid of him they were? In verse 33, Jesus told them he wouldn't be present for much longer, but that he would go somewhere they couldn't follow. Now, this is wasn't done in this spirit, but it's the same kind of thing. Well, you won't have me to kick around much longer. Jesus was just simply saying, okay, I'm not going to be with you in the, in the future, and you're going to wish 
that you had not missed the opportunity that was right before your eyes. So the people started saying, where will he go? To the dispersion? How can he go somewhere we can't follow him? They were asking if Jesus would go somewhere else in the Roman Empire where Jews had been exiled to. And then when the captivity was over, they didn't make their way back. But they just set up shop all over the Roman Empire and beyond. Which, by the way, was a perfect setup for the gospel going out. God had designed all of this beautifully. So there were synagogues and Gentiles who were disgusted with the debauchery of the day. Had said, you know what? These, these Jews, there's something to it. And they connected with the Jews in the synagogues. And when, the, when Paul and the other apostles went around, they always went to the synagogue first. And then they started witnessing to the rest of the Gentiles in, areas, in the area. So God had made this beautiful plan in which the gospel would spread that way. But when these people were asking, where's Jesus going to go? To the dispersion? Probably. I, I always think that this is sort of mocking him. Like, oh, where's he going to go? Crete? Ephesus? Oh, it's like we can't find him there. Where can he go that we can't follow him? Of course we can follow him. We know what Jesus meant. But the people who heard him, not only did they not understand what he was saying, but they just didn't seem to care to understand. It's always this banter back and forth, just picking at him constantly. He would say something, and they'd shoot back with some kind of snide comment. Last week, David Calvert gave us a great taste of the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem by comparing it to the North Carolina State Fair. North Carolina State Fair, less than two, just a little over two months away, in case anybody's wanting to know. Uh, it's close. Um, it, you think about the analogy. It works on multiple levels. I've thought about it this week. <coughs> I, I think I mentioned this already. More than I usually do. How much harvest is a time for celebration? Think about the agricultural connection and the food and the booths and the festive spirit. So here, I want to give you a few details from the Feast of Booths that are going to help, understand, help us understand Jesus' teaching um, in John 7 and 8 and possibly even 9 and 10. All of the things that happen in these chapters may have occurred on the last day of the feast. And we're going to talk about what's the last day in just a moment. So every, every day, uh, the seven-day event, every day the priest would go and retrieve water. The high priest would retrieve water from the pool of Siloam. They would go in procession <coughs> to uh, the temple, and he would pour the water out. At the altar. Now the altar was a place of what? Sacrifice. We know that God commanded sacrifice of animals. And the blood of those covered the sins of the people temporarily. If they <coughs> made these sacrifices in faith. Hebrews tells us it could never hold. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin. And we needed something that would take sins away Permanently, but so the altar. I don't know if the people would make a connection 
uh, with the sacrifice, but they certainly made a, a connection with the importance of water for the growing of crops. Um, on the first day of the Feast of Booths, the high priest would read Zechariah 14, 16 to 17. Don't have time to do that here. Write that down because you'll see that God is saying, look, you need to remember where your blessings are, are anchored in me. Uh, in our day of technological advances and irrigation systems and grocery stores that bring food to us even when crops have had a bad year locally. And when you think about desalinization process where we can even begin, we're trying to get it to where we can take salt water and make it fresh water so that we can grow food. When we've got all of this at our fingertips, we take so many things for granted. It's hard for us to remember how very dependent we are on the Lord. But sooner or later, we all remember how not in control we are and how much we need God's presence in our lives. Again, this week has been a really tough week for a lot of people and for our nation as a whole. Are we not aware yet that we need the Lord? Of course, so often the the temptation is to, instead of turning toward the Lord, to turn away from him in anger and bitterness. When you read Zechariah 14, you'll see how the Lord graciously built in these times for the people to remember how dependent upon him they were. And what better way to remember than at a festival, a feast, where there's a great deal of celebration going on. In just a few moments, we're going to see Jesus point the people to a far greater need that they had than rain for the crops, as important as that is. And he will also describe his blessed provision for their needs. In addition to the water ceremony, think about this now. I may review these just briefly next week, but this is going to come into play next week more than this week. On the first day, and possibly on each day, a torch lighting ceremony that was Quite an event. Jesus will say next week, I am the light of the world. And he'll do so in the context of this particular part of the Feast of Booths. Finally, the day after the official end of the Feast of Booths, or on the eighth day, there was a full day of celebration that broke out as the people took down their temporary housing and sang the songs of the Hallel, or Psalms 113 through 118, the same songs that Jesus most likely sang after the Last Supper. There's so many connections. This event, this Feast of Booths had taken, taken on eschatological implications. People were looking for the Messiah. So it was the perfect place for Jesus to interact with the people in the ways that he did. And this eighth day, which had been added, it was not prescribed in Leviticus 23, when the Lord told the people to celebrate the Feast of Booths every year. Um, it, it was a seven-day event in, in Leviticus 23, but now it be had become almost an eight-day event. 
And it was in this context that Jesus cried out on the last day of the feast, which may have been the seventh day or it may have been the eighth day. It doesn't really matter when you think about it. But <clears throat> on the last day, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So imagine this. Jesus, either on the seventh day, the last day when water was poured out, if he said it at this point, if he cried out in the middle of the feast during this ceremony, it was dramatic. If he did it on day eight, when there was no water being poured out, but he did it in the place and about the time where it was usually poured out, it was dramatic. Even still, it was dramatic. Either way. And Jesus was pointing to a permanent solution to our need of the Lord's presence and provision in our lives because one day we're not going to be able to eat like we used to eat. One day we're not going to be able to eat at all. One day we're going to be dead and we're not, no need for food, no need for sustenance, sustaining this life. But we will continue to live and we desperately need provision for that time when this life is done. John has told us often that all scripture points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Law, miracles, feasts, Sabbath, sacrifices. And in the same promise that he made to the Samaritan woman, Jesus says that all who believe on him will never thirst again or will have eternal life. Since this feast pointed to God's provision, it points back to God's provision for his people in the wilderness. It's likely that Jesus is saying here when he says, as the scripture has said, he's pointing to Exodus where Moses struck the rock and the, and, and the water flowed out. But there are so many references in, in the Old Testament that, that connect water and life and spirit that we could spend a long time just listing the verses from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, on and on. Isaiah 55, you remember last week, come to the waters, all you, you who thirst, and drink freely. Come and buy bread, even without money. You can achieve, you can receive this if you come in faith to the Lord. So, Jesus informs us, or excuse me, John informs us that Jesus, in verse 39, was talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out for the benefit of the world. It flows out of those who believe. The, the blessings of the Spirit flow through believers to the world. And what was one of the big problems that the Jewish leaders had had? Uh, had because of their lack of understanding of Scripture. Remember, over and over in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, it says you'll be a light to the Gentiles. You'll be a blessing to the world. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. But by the time of Jesus, they didn't, Jews didn't care about anybody but themselves. And they were saying, look, you want to have anything to do with us? 
You follow the law of Moses and you can be one of us. They weren't looking out. They were very inward focused. And now Jesus is saying, okay, in this new day, my covenant people will bless the entire world. The spirit will go out from them. This is just the beginning of John's treatment of Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit. Be much more about this in John 14 to 16. Jesus' comments were always controversial. Immediately after his claim to be the source of spiritual blessing, the debate about Jesus' temple house resumed. John 7 is a great example how a large group of people who are told the gospel will respond. Some will say that he was a prophet. Some say he was a deceiver. Others will say he was a great teacher, but nothing more. And some will say he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So you remember the leaders had sent officers to arrest Jesus. They come back and they report that they didn't arrest him. And the leaders are like, what's going on? Didn't we give you a job to do? Why didn't you arrest the man? And they said, nobody ever spoke like him. That's true, isn't it? Um, Nobody ever spoke like Jesus. And then they mocked the officers. They said, really? Look around you. Did you see any educated people who believed in him? What's wrong with you? Then Nicodemus spoke up in defense of Jesus. And Nicodemus was an educated man. Nick at night, we call him, because he came to Jesus by night, uh, is beginning to show evidence of faith as he weakly defends Jesus. The, the, the officers say, nobody ever spoke like it. Whoa, no educated people. And then an educated guy speaks up and says, uh, really, do we condemn him uh, without a hearing? And because of his education and his position, they defer to Nicodemus, right? No, they treat him the same way. Really? You believe in him? The man's from Galilee, for goodness sake. Now, this is interesting to me. That's supposed to be the end of discussion, right? The guy's from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. They appear to know nothing more about Jesus, but that he comes from Galilee, but that's enough, right? So, next chapter, same day, very likely at the Feast of Booths, when Jesus is talking with them, they're going to get really angry with Jesus because he has bested them in conversation, as he always does. And they're going to claim that he's illegitimate. We're not born illegitimately. You know, people choose to believe what they want to believe. And when they present their position, they do so with a very lopsided argument most of the time. It's kind of like, well, you're stupid because of this. And they don't give the whole picture, but it's just that's kind of the way these people are acting. You would think that there was talks. It's like, yeah, geez, Mary had the little brat down in Bethlehem. He wouldn't have used the word brat, but they would, when they were talking about him, 
And surely somebody, if they had wanted to, would have said, wait a minute, Bethlehem, why was she in Bethlehem? His parents are from the tribe of Judah? Isn't the Messiah supposed? But they didn't care to investigate. They just used whatever information they had to their advantage without giving the whole story. I am so glad that never happens in our day. The end of our text, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Some of you are really not going to want to hear this. In other words, almost all scholars, and I mean conservative scholars, people who believe that every word of the Bible is true, it's God's word, do not think that this was part of the original text. But as D.A. Carson says, there's no reason to think that this event did not actually happen. So it's not a part, you don't really hear about this section, the woman taken in adultery to the third, fourth century at the very earliest. No, none of the old uh, the, <clears throat> the original church fathers talked about this story, but it made its way into the text. And there is nothing in here that would disagree with Jesus' teaching. It is exactly the kind of interaction that Jesus would have had with sinners. Both the woman in this story and the self-righteous leaders who tried to trap Jesus. The Jewish leaders were always trying to trap Jesus. How often did they get it, the best of it? Never, never once did Jesus say, well, you're right. Okay, well, let me come at this a different way. Never happened. And, and by the way, that's going to happen to you every time you argue with God. It's, you're not going to win that argument. <clears throat> Are we allowed to? Yes. Um, <clears throat> but at some point, the Lord is going to bring us to the place of trusting him. So, how... Was the woman alone caught in adultery? I think it takes two, right? Have an adulterous relationship. Where was the man? This was likely a setup. And the Pharisees thought they were so smart when they asked Jesus what should be done to her. I mean, if Jesus said... <clears throat> Uh, let her go, then he would be rejecting the law of Moses. They laid it all out, right? If he said stoner, then he would be in big trouble with Rome. Cl case closed. Lose, lose for Jesus. Never is that the case. Jesus' response was perfect. Let the one without sin cast the first stone. Yesterday in El Paso and in Dayton, we witness yet again the price that we pay because of sin in this world. I and a lot of others often talk about this broken world in which, in which we live. But we fail to remember that it's not broken and it's our job to fix it. It's broken because of sin. Sin that is with us. All the time. Are we talking about Adam's sin or our sin? Yes. Yes. The pain is the result of sin. When you're tempted to be so angry at the other side 
Remember, we all contribute to the brokenness. Thank God for forgiveness in Jesus. That forgiveness comes as a result of Jesus' death and on the cross. And in just a few minutes, we're going to gather at this table. And as we move to the table, let's think about some ways that the events of John 7 are true every day in our world. Beginning with, first, the world will never agree about Jesus until he returns. I hope that no one told you that if you would just trust Jesus, your life would be so good and wonderful and easy. It is good and wonderful to know that we have the hope of eternal life in Christ. But it's not going to be easy. Has there ever been a day when people are so desperate to have others agree with us about whatever it is that is important to the culture on a given day. Well, I really the answer to that is yes. We're just human beings. It's just the same old story, different time, different place, but it's a, different circumstances, but the same human nature. And the sooner you accept that the world will never agree about Jesus until we see him return in glory. The more prepared you will be to live in the hope of Jesus' return. Now, I say this often, but it's just important to, to remember this. Hope in the New Testament does not refer, I hope things get better in my life. I hope this happens. I hope that happens. Hope in the New Testament is the certainty of eternal life with Jesus. And it's looking forward to the day when everything will be better. It'll all make sense. And it'll all be right when Jesus rules on the earth. But it is not going to be until he comes. That's why it's so important that we hope in Christ. Look, I, I say this enough that I, I didn't write it in. I didn't say it in the first service, but I'm going to say it here. Um, I, I have not talked with one, not with one pastor. That thinks, oh, you know, things are pretty good. Things are really looking up for the church in America. In fact, every pastor I say, every pastor I talk with says, no, it's going the wrong direction. It's going to be tough. We need to prepare. And one of the best ways to prepare is to have our hope in eternity. Parents of young children, embrace this hope so that you will teach it to your kids by your lives. <clears throat> Don't always be looking for everything to get better because we can fix everything in America except that we can't fix ourselves. Don't you see it? We're in trouble. And our best hope is the gospel of Christ. Second, in the end, the only thing, the only thing that will matter is how you stand with Jesus. Not how you stand with the Jesus you want him to be. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted the Messiah. Jesus just wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And, and a lot of people make Jesus the Jesus they want him to be. And if you say it and enough people agree with you, it's true, right? 
only if it agrees with what Jesus said about himself, about scripture. Over and over again, Jesus called everyone, Pharisees, Sadducees, the people, to decision. You must be born again. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In the end, it won't matter how many good works you have done, how many followers you have on social media. In the end, the only thing that will matter is how you stand Jesus. Third, Jesus' followers are designed to be a blessing to the world. When Jesus said that the one who believes will have rivers of living water flowing out of his heart, he almost certainly meant that believers will be a blessing to the world as the Holy Spirit does his work through us for the world. This interpretation is consistent with, with the sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual blessing that we will bring to the world. It's like he will say to his disciples, you will do greater works than the works that I've done. doesn't mean we'll do more miracles. Why? What are the miracles about in John's gospel? What are they called? Signs. They point to him. So the greater works that we will do will be taking the gospel to the world. And people Believe it's going to a lot more people than it was in Jesus' day. That's the focus of our fourth point. We bless the world by sharing the truth about Jesus. Look, there are many ways that we share the love of Christ with the world. And sometimes we earn the right to say the gospel by treating people the way that Jesus wants us to treat them the way he treated others. We do not bless the world by condemning all who disagree with our social or political agendas. We bless the world with the gospel. And what is the gospel? This is the beginning point of the gospel, but it's so much deeper than the plan of salvation. Man is sinful and hopelessly lost without Jesus. We cannot redeem ourselves by doing good works. We can never be good enough. One sin taints the whole thing. Because of his great love for us, God sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for sin upon himself. Punishment that we deserved. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for sinners. And when we acknowledge our sin, when we repent of our sin by saying, Oh God, I'm a sinner I agree with you what you say about me. Forgive me for my sins. And when we believe that Jesus died for us, we will be saved. And we bless the world by sharing the gospel. And the world will thank us for sharing the gospel, right? Wrong. Number five, there is a cost. For sharing Jesus. If you have. I don't know. Maybe you've, 
you've known me long enough and you would say, I don't agree with that at all. I hate conflict. I really do. I try to avoid it every way possible. And yet somehow when you're sharing the truth of Christ, you're just going to have to say things that people don't want to hear. In fact, a lot of people will approach you. Oh, you're one of those that believe if you do such and such, you go to hell, right? Look, doing such and such or not doing this or that doesn't send us to hell. Our nature as sinners, we are born that way, headed for destruction. And unless God rescues us by bringing the gospel to us and us believing that Jesus died for our sins and that we are to live our lives in union with him and for him and we're to live like him then we are not saved but when we trust Christ he changes us I do far more damage than good if I tell someone you can live any way you want to Jesus still loves you no matter what it's true that Jesus loves sinners but it is also true that he says if you believe you are not condemned go and sin no more. If you're inclined to feel sorry for yourself, this is going to be a difficult life as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. I could surely be in that category if I'm not careful where I feel sorry for myself. Don't do that. Follow Jesus. Proclaim the truth about Jesus and take heart because number six is the ways of God are always best. They're always right. You may have missed uh, an important and fascinating truth in our text. Just after Jesus claimed to be the giver of eternal life that would make believers a blessing to the world, the Apostle John told us that Jesus was referencing the work of the Holy Spirit who would not come until Jesus finished his earth and he departed from this earth. Um, Hannah said it beautifully. We're grateful, God, that Jesus is our living hope because he conquered death. He did not stay in the grave. We have a living Hope, but why is it that Jesus had to leave before the Spirit could come? I don't know. But I do know this, that the disciples who really resisted the idea of Jesus going away rejoiced greatly after Pentecost when the Spirit had come. And they communed with the Lord all the time in their relationship with Him by the work of the Spirit. Furthermore, why is it, as we're told in Romans 11, that the Jews had to fall away so that the Gentiles could be brought into the covenant family of God? I don't know, but I imagine all of us who are Gentiles, which I think is pretty close to 100% in this room, are grateful that the grace of God has been extended to us, even as we pray for him to open the eyes of those who were formerly known as the people of God. Why does there have to be a heaven and a hell? I don't know. But while we cry out with anguish hearts for God to save sinners, one day we will rejoice around the throne of God, declaring that His ways 
are always right. They're always best. Why is it that Europe had to fall away so that America could believe the gospel in the numbers that we have? I don't know. Why is it that we're likely going to fall away as a nation so that the gospel goes on? I don't know. But I know this. The ways of God are good and they're right. And you can always, always trust God. Romans 8 may be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. That used to hear people say that, but it became, it came, became true in my heart maybe five, six, seven years ago. I don't know what. But when you see this beautiful symmetry of God that I've just been talking about that makes no sense to us when we're looking at it from just one angle, but the way that God does things in the world. He talks in Romans 8 a lot about suffering that the entire world experiences because of the fall of man, because of Adam and Eve's sin. It, that believers and unbelievers alike suffer. But then he goes and talks about the beautiful blessings that are given to believers. And when we doubt the ways of God, we can contemplate the depth of his love expressed to us in the cross, as we see in Romans 8, 32. He, this verse, this, this truth about God ought to be something that we think about as we suffer. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Does that mean that he will make everything good for us all the time? You can't read Romans 8 and come up with that interpretation of Romans 8.32. God's blessings to us don't always make sense to other people. A lot of times we think, if I were in your shoes, I would be really upset. I would be hurt. I would be bitter. God encourages us. To remember that even though life may seem confusing, it may seem against you. If you will live in the shadow of the cross, where God's love is fully revealed to us, then you will learn to trust and you will know the truth of this statement. You can always trust God. Let's pray. As I pray, I'm going to ask the elders and deacons who are going to be serving at the table to come forward and also the worship team. Father, there is a lot that we don't understand about um, our relationship with you. There's a lot that we don't understand about that. Your ways. Uh, but Lord, you have revealed to us <clears throat> enough from your word that we can take joy in trusting Christ. Even when life is painful to the point that it feels we have no more tears to weep. Even when it makes no sense at all to go to the store one day and 
come home minus some family members. Lord, our hearts are broken. May we understand suffering at the foot of the cross where Jesus was sent to earth by you, Father. And even though he said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Even then, your silence shouted your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf because of our sin. As we approach this table, Lord, we know that the scripture tells us when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, to examine ourselves. And if there's sin in our lives, we are to confess it. So, Lord, we take just this moment to do that very thing. If you need to do business with the Lord right now, if you don't know him as your Savior, Cry out to Jesus to save you. Confess your sin and ask the Lord to save you. If you're a believer, confess before the Lord the sins that you have committed since you last confessed. Thank you for the sacrifice that was paid on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we come to this table, uh, we recognize, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We remember especially his death in our place. We invite all those who have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior to join us. The meal will be passed today. And then uh, you can partake. Just hold on to the bread or the juice as it comes to you. And then we will all partake together. The bread is gluten-free if you need to know that. Um, so uh, I want to... 26. I used to have this memorized the whole book of Matthew, but now I've seen it. Not really. I've lied. I've got to confess again before I... Before I partake. But in Matthew 26, we're told, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we look to the past when Jesus died in our place. We recognize as we come together that we are gathering as the body of Christ to remember the sacrifice that he paid. And we look forward to the day when he returns. That is our hope. So as we partake of this meal, may we do so in faith. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.